Hey everyone, and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray, and uh, this week's show is brought to you by Gigamon. Gigamon's Chief Security Officer, Chaim Mazal, will be along in this week's sponsor interview to talk about what they're doing on the network metadata collection side of things, so do stick around for that. Uh, but first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's news headlines with Adam Boileau. And Adam, of course, the big news uh, last week, late last week, is that uh, Joe Sullivan, the former Uber Chief Security Officer, Uh, has not been sentenced to prison. He got to walk away from court and uh, this concludes the legal action against him. This concludes his prosecution uh, for covering up that data breach in 2016. Yes, he's going to get, what, three years of probation, have to do some community service, a couple hundred hours of, you know, picking up trash or whatever it is, uh, and pay a $50,000 fine, which, you know, it's still a pretty significant, you know, you would have lost a lot more was, than that in legal fees, man. Well, well, yeah, that's too, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's at least it didn't end in jail time, but it's certainly been a case that's been, uh, you know, a thing that a lot of people have, you know, been worried about what might happen, and it's good to see the end of it, understand where we are at least. And it's been a while, what, 2016 since that attack uh, happened and, you know, was kind of dressed up as a bug bounty, and the world has changed quite a bit. I mean, I think, you know, how CSOs and other people view you know, the relationship between people reporting bugs and the government and so on and so forth. Like, 2016 seems like a very long time ago. I think there's a lot of bad takes flying around on this one, to be honest. Like, at the time that this happened in 2016, it was the New York... Well, at the time that it first came out, it was the New York Times who broke the story. I can't remember which year that they did that. It was sometime afterwards. But they said, yeah, you know, Uber covered up this data breach and whoa, 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 whoa. And... You know, at the time we had pretty good sourcing in Uber who was telling us, you know, their side of the story, which is there had been this data breach and these guys were trying to shake money out of them. And Sullivan and his team used the payment to these guys as a way to dox them and to get assurances you know, now we know your full net. We can't pay you unless we have your tax information kind of thing, right? And it worked. And they wound up going out to this guy's place. You know, they had him fully doxxed, fully identified, made them sign agreements saying that they would delete the data. I think there might have even been some device access brokered there as well. So from that side of it, it was kind of handled. And look, part of the story they spun me, and I don't know how true it is, is one of the reasons they decided not to report these guys to law enforcement is because they were young, they were living in bad situations, and they just thought, look, we'll we'll just let it slide. I don't know if that's true, and I also think it doesn't really matter if that's true, because one of the things uh, Sullivan was convicted of here was uh, misprison of a felony, uh, failing to report a felony. And I think, you know, it was wrong to give these guys benefit of the doubt, because it turned out they'd been doing it to other companies as well, right? So they weren't just sweet little people who didn't know how the world worked, uh, they were criminals. So a lot of CISOs have been like, oh, but what if we pay for ransomware? Does that mean we get charged for misprison of felonies as well? Well, this is a bit different. I mean, you're talking about a case where the offenders were actually American, where they had identified the offenders, and where, you know, Sullivan would have known he was supposed to report this to the FTC. And in fact, the judge found that, you know, like he, he didn't just fail to report it, he concealed it, which is a probably a reflection of the culture at Uber at the time, uh, but also I think represents a massive failure in judgment on on, on Sullivan's part. Now, I, I know a lot of people who know him uh, and who really like him. Apparently, he's a great guy, but it was an error of judgment. Now, the judges let him off because he was in good standing, but did also remark, you know, they said basically that he's a, you know, he's a good dude, bad judgment, you're lucky, the next person who does this goes to prison, was the, was the upshot of the, the sentencing remarks. But the judge also said that, you know, 
the the letter that was signed by a bunch of CISOs who were concerned about being sent to prison for doing CISO stuff, like the judge made some comments along the lines of, did, did, how familiar are they with, with this case? Because <laughs> it's not really right that they should be concerned here. So that's, you know, that's my take on the, on the Joe Sullivan sentencing. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, it'll be a lot of conversations around Caesar dinner parties, I imagine, <laughs> trying to figure out what it means. But it but shouldn't be a co- conversation at, at CISO dinner parties, really, because they're not out there actively concealing concealing stuff from FTC investigations and committing <laughs> felonies, right? Like, unless you are actively concealing a felony from an FTC investigation, you should be okay. I mean, even even at the time, even at the time that all of this came out, you and I said... At the time, years ago, we said, look, what they did with handling the breach and getting the data deleted and the payment into the, you know, they handled the situation, right? Where they made a mistake was failing to report it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the correct conclusion to draw. Yeah. Anyway, moving on to other stuff that's sort of concluding after a few years of back and forth. And uh, Merck, the pharmaceutical company in the United States, it has won a battle against one of its insurers, which is going to have to pay up over losses stemming from NotPetya. Um, I think this is just uh, a court upholding a previous decision, but this kind of lays the whole thing to rest. This wasn't a cyber insurance policy. This was an all risks policy, but essentially the courts upheld a decision that this was not an act of war. You know, there were no tanks involved, no people dying, that sort of thing. So it wasn't really warlike and... Um, you know, they're going to have to cough up. But, you know, end result of that is higher premiums for everyone, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and the insurance market has also changed quite a bit since since that time. I mean, the sorts of, an, you know, an all-risk policy like that probably would have more specific carve-outs these days if you were going to go and buy it. All um, risks, asterisks, yeah, conditions yeah, exactly. apply. Most risks, some, some <laughs> most, risks. Most risk um, policy, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, this was, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, something like 700 mil, about 40% of their total coverage, uh, is was what was being disputed, but yeah, they had like what 1.7 billion limited coverage. Uh, so you can see why they, you know, why they were going to give it a go, uh, you know, arguing about it. But mm. you know, I just think like the, also the insurance market has has changed a lot, um, and not Petra just seems. You know, thinking back to how many episodes we've done, it just seems like such a long time ago now. It <laughs> was 2017, right? So let's move on, and there's been a leak. Right. MSI, the hardware manufacturer, had a data breach and, you know, some crew, I think, was ransoming it and and decided to leak a bunch of their key material. These are the keys used to sign uh, verification of, you know, motherboard resources during boot up, i.e. boot guard and the rest of this kind of Intel secure boot ecosystem. Um, and that seems pretty bad, um, given especially, you know, recent interests in boot time malware and, and you know, backdooring in the BIOS and all that kind of things. You know, any chink in that secure boot up process that anchors it down to the, you know, hardware TPM and up into the operating system, you know, this is kind of right in the middle of that chain. You know, that's a thing that can have real world impact these days. Like it's not a, you know, sort of theoretical or niche kind of place to attack anymore. Yeah, and it looks like there are 57 products impacted. Uh, their, their firmware image signing keys have been disclosed. And there's 166 products affected where the Intel boot guard uh, keys are out there, right? So, I mean, the saving grace here is it's not everything, I guess. So, you know, you've still got to be a little bit lucky, I guess, to get the key, you know, landing on a target. There's a lot of diversity in this sort of hardware out there, I guess is what I'm saying. But it's still not great. No, it's it's really not great, but you are right that, you know, um, uh, MSI tends to be a more enthusiast machines, I guess, rather than, you know, the sort of stock standard business stuff 
that you'd find in a, in a corporate environment. But that also that ecosystem of motherboard OEMs and like it's it's very sometimes it can be hard to tell uh, exactly what to expect. But we, we we see this sort of thing in the sort of in the Android handset ecosystem yes. and in the PC ecosystem, right? So this is one area where Apple really does have an advantage. I mean, we've seen the strangest crypto screw ups, haven't we? In everything from you know Western the way Western Digital was implementing uh, disk crypto through to these types of leaks and similar stuff with the Android ecosystem. Whereas with Apple, you know, they can send their strictest headmasters down to the factories to make sure that they're using, <laughs> you know, that they're, they're, they're doing it right. It's, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work that way in these more open ecosystems. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the way and like the amount of key material that has to be kind of shared around and the, like the trust for the whole ecosystem can be eroded very, very quickly, you know, from manufacturers that are two or three kind of, you know, orders away from where the key material was generated or who should be looking after it. You know, that Apple top-down approach absolutely has advantages in the management of things like this key yeah, material. exactly, exactly. Now, uh, some people might know I like classic cars. Classic cars are an interesting thing to me. Uh, but let's talk about some classic malware, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Because yes. American, American authorities, agencies, have taken down the snake malware. And I saw a, a great tweet from John Hillquist uh, today uh, pointing out that Kevin Mandia was hunting this malware when he was in high school. Uh, when when John was in high school, right? So walk us through this, but it looks like it looks like a a, a terrific takedown and an interventionist takedown against uh, this snake malware, which belongs to the Turler Group, which is the sixteenth sixteenth uh, cent, uh, center sixteen of the FSB in Russia. So this is a a piece of Russian APT malware that has been in use for something like twenty years, and the US has just nuked it. Yeah, this is a really really interesting write up uh, and. The snake malware, as you say, been around for a very, very long time, and you know it kind of shows off a bunch of its of its legacy in that history. There's mm. um, you know a lot of really interesting details here uh, about the, you know the mechanics of the of the malware, how it communicates, the kind of pluggable mechanisms, and like just reading it, you can tell it was written with love. Right, there's just there's wording in it, and there's bits in it where you it's can a, it's see a bit the fa- farewell, my old friend, isn't it? A, a little bit, yeah, yeah, but also like there's some clear admiration for the quality of the technical construction and the engineering, and like you can just kind of feel whoever wrote this, you know, spent a lot of time with it. It's an old friend. You yeah, know, it's a well-worn, you know, comfortable APT pair of socks. You know, that they've had for a long time. Yeah, I mean, um, it uses it uses old school stuff like peer to peer C two and you know like stuff that's really clever that no one really does anymore. Yeah, it, it has a lot of you know a lot of history, and yeah, you can feel how the design choices were made and where they changed it over time, and it's all you know written very nicely in C with very few bugs. Uh, so it's just a, you know it's a piece of high quality hacker engineering, and it would have been. You know, much like when when you read some of the old hacker tools from the mid two thousands, it, sometimes you lose sight of how amazing they must have been in their day, even though yeah. you know still usable now. Um, so it's just a wonderful read and goes into great detail about all the various components and how it all works together and the comms mechanisms and like as you said, like the peer to peer thing would have been amazing in like the mid two thousands. Yeah, um, when you consider what the state of the art then was. So yeah, it's a it's a lovely write up and but but I think Adam, the interesting thing here to me is the way that they took this down because they didn't just sinkhole a bunch of C2s. They actually reached out and touched these boxes. And this is something that we've seen the Dutch do, but it's not really the way the Americans normally roll. That's why I think this is interesting. They're moving from a hands-off, you know, collect data and prosecute people approach 
Uh, you know, we're seeing this across the board. We're seeing this with crime forums. We're seeing this with ransomware groups. And now we're seeing this with APT uh, malware, where now they're reaching out and actually just actually touching those machines to disable this malware. Yeah, and that, that is a, a notable change, especially, you know, as you say, in the kind of top echelons of intelligence gathering where, you know, it was always a bit like, you know, you're not supposed to be seen, you're not supposed to be caught and actually going out and interfering with stuff, you know, probably not a thing that was easy to get signed off, you know, 10 years ago. And now, as you say, intervention uh, is a thing that we do and it's pragmatic and, and realistic and sensible to do so, especially when you've got such a great understanding uh, and maybe it's time to permanently kill you know, an old friend like this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the concern, I guess, is always going to be that, you know, you might lose some access, that you've some insight you've got into their activities when you do something like this and they're going to come back with better malware. But, you know, probably better to just keep whack-a-moling them, you know, honestly. But I, I did find that part of it really interesting that they're rolling like the Dutch now, which is they're using flaws in the malware to like overwrite parts of it. And like they're actually changing data on infected systems. And that is something the Americans never wanted to do. Yeah, like, I mean, how many times have we had that? Like, oh my God, beneficial worms or whatever, you know, kind of conversations on the podcast over the years to know real well, avail. Yeah, but that was and always a dumb of, idea. But the Dutch would do this sort of thing, though. They would actually they would, reach out yes. and, and get malware to to self destruct and, and, and whatever and remove itself from boxes. And that was a d- sort of tangent. That was a different discussion to the worm one. Yeah, but I, yeah, I guess it's just like that conversation was always, oh my God, jurisdiction, oh my God, you know. And the fact yeah. we kind of, that just kind of quietly went away as hacking and security and stuff became serious business. And it's a sign of how serious business it is these days. I always thought it was dumb. Like even yeah. even over a decade ago, I thought the argument that, oh, you can't go disabling malware because you might impact a medical device or something like that. It's like, well, the malware might also impact the medical device. <laughs> yeah. So yes. I just yeah. didn't see it as being a you know, particularly <laughs> solid argument, especially when yeah. you've done the requisite testing and you kind yes. of know the malware well, which as you point out, like the CISA write-up, whoever wrote this knew this malware yeah, as like, well as like, anyone who's working on it on the Russian side today, you know? Yes, and, and you kind of also get that vibe from them because, you know, they've got, say, like some operators clearly didn't know how to use it and so they've got, you know, network traces or, or logs of, you know, Russian operators using this without understanding all the features of their own malware because... Yeah, whoever it was at the NSA or whoever that wrote this understands it better than than they do, which it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, now let's talk uh, about Iran because there's a few Iran stories uh, to talk about this week. The first one is that they have jumped on the paper cut bandwagon. You know, this is that CVSS 10 absolute murder death kill bug that we've spoken about over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it is being used now by uh, hackers based in Iran. So that is Mint Sandstorm and Mango Sandstorm under the latest uh, naming convention. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a couple <laughs> APT crews in Iran are using that, uh, but also Clop are all over it, of course, and uh, also Lockbit. So, hooray. Well, I mean, at least now there's ransomware crews involved, it will get killed a little bit faster, you know, where if it's just nation states, then, uh, you know, these things can last a long time. Uh, But there's still a bunch of it on the internet. Um, We've seen some reporting that, you know, the number of machines that are exposed is still surprisingly high yeah. uh, from, from bulk scanning, etc. So, yeah, if you if you have a paper cut system and you haven't patched it yet, it's probably time to roll instant response. I mean, a lot of people would have it and not know as well, which is yeah, why stuff true. like Rumble, you know, well, now Run Zero, uh, it's called. Uh, you can you can grab Run Zero and find stuff like this pretty easily. They, they, they did a blog post on finding this stuff uh, with Run Zero like pretty early on in all of this, but it's way too late now. Don't think that 
Run Zero is going to save you. It's done. Yeah, You're cooked. Yeah, it's, it's instant response time. Yeah. And look, staying with Iran, uh, this is a write-up from last week, actually, in our Seriously Risky Business newsletter. Tom Uren, uh, our colleague, did a terrific write-up on two separate Microsoft reports looking at Iranian activities uh, in, in um, Iranian activities around uh, influence operations. And what they're doing is kind of using influence operations to make their hacks look bigger and scarier. Uh, and this can be stuff like, yeah, some stuff they did to the Armenian police and whatever that wasn't actually that impressive. But then they started, you know, trying to use sock puppet accounts and, and whatever to to uh, push this sort of stuff. It's just interesting. The Iranians are changing tactics at the moment, right? Um, they seem to be skilling up a bit and trying new stuff. And we spoke, Adam, you and I spoke about the destructive attacks that they launched recently against cloud environments. And yeah, Tom's just done a really nice job of pulling a lot of that together in a, in a single piece of analysis. Yes, there's a bunch of kind of loose ends, I guess, that I hadn't previously read about. So, for example, they had compromised some CCTV cameras um, belonging to the Albanian police, and they had you know, footage of a border crossing, which not very exciting. But then, but that was that was of, their response. That was their way of copying the tradecraft of the Israelis who broke into the even prison and showed panicked, you know, prison guards freaking out as the image on their CCTV cameras changed to some like you know protest meme or whatever, yeah. right? And and, and their response is to, oh, we can, we can hack into CCTV as well. And it showed a bunch of Albanian border guards like playing, you know, <laughs> Candy Crush, you know, on their, on their crush, phones, yeah. right? And you know, yeah. it's not really the same thing, guys. It's not exactly. But yeah, if you big up it on social media enough, then maybe you can, you know, at least claim that you did it uh, in your report to your superior. Um, but yeah, the, the Iranians have been, you know, the target of a lot of, you know, pretty high quality hacking. I mean, some of that petrol pump stuff the Israelis pulled off was just, you know, chef kiss. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, you can see why they want to, you know, make the most of what they do have and, and try and, uh, you know, convince people that they're still uh, the serious cyber power that they want to be. Well, I think they might get there, right? Like we saw that with North Korea, who always had very skilled operators, but then they were able to actually build out scale. And that's quite hard. I was a bit skeptical yeah. as to whether they'd get there, and they certainly have. Uh, and I think, you know, with Iran, they're trying new stuff. They're taking this stuff seriously. They keep getting attacked by really high quality attacks, right? So they're they're figuring <laughs> it out. Eventually, they're going to learn, right? Yeah, yeah, they are figuring it out, and and I, I think they've got a solid chance of being even worse than they are already. Uh, but they are also having a bit of a difficult time themselves, Adam, and not just from Israeli groups. Uh, so there's a, a supposed hacktivist group uh, called Uprising Till Overthrow, uh, affiliated with uh, Albania-based opposition uh, to the current Iranian government, uh, and they've been all up in a bunch of government agencies uh, in Iran and have been dropping all sorts of docs um, from the foreign ministry and a bunch of other things. So, like, ministry meetings and correspondence and phone numbers of officials uh, being dumped on the internet, uh, and that's certainly making, making a bit of a mess for them. Yeah, this is the MEK party, which is in which is an Iranian political party in exile in uh, Albania, and yeah, it seems someone is getting behind him. I mean, we we're always skeptical, you know, when someone is a yes. is a supposed yeah. uh, hacktivist, but you know, this could indeed be the real thing. But they did something like deface two hundred websites and steal a bunch of information, and they're leaking it all over Telegram and stuff. So, you know, it seems like Iran really inbound and outbound is uh, you know, there's a lot happening there at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and I guess you know, in that kind of fire, you do build good skills, and you look at you know Israel, uh, Israel's abilities in the cyber world, right? When you're under constant attack, you get good at it, uh, and similarly, you get good at giving it. So there's always some downsides, you know, even though it is sometimes entertaining to see, you know, people getting their comeuppance. 
Now, Kroll, which is uh, funnily enough, they are a sponsor of uh, Risky Biz. They've published a report uh, looking at, uh, at the cactus malware and, uh, you know, notable for a couple of reasons, one of which is that, yeah, it's another one that they go in via Fortinet. <laughs> so they pop an unpatched Fortinet appliance, um, then they grab the service account from that and then onwards and into AD and then ransomware everywhere. It's just like, it's uh, it hurts that people are still getting owned <laughs> with their Fortinet stuff, you know? It does. It really does hurt, especially when you buy it for security and here you are getting wrecked through it. Yeah. I guess one of the novel things about this cactus malware is uh, to avoid antivirus and avoid detection, there's kind of like custom crypto that happens when you deploy it so that the sample that's you know being used to encrypt your network is freshly built, freshly encrypted, uh, and then as a result, not particularly straightforward to detect with signature-based antivirus, but... You know, perhaps heuristic stuff will save you. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, fun times for Fortinet customers as usual. <laughs> as um, now you alluded to this earlier, <laughs> but the White House is considering imposing a ban on ransom payments with caveats. I think this is a terrible idea. They're saying there should be sort of exclusions, like people could get a waiver to go and pay the ransom uh, if they are operating, you know, critical infrastructure or whatever. You know, it's a bad idea. Uh, I, I honestly think this is a bad idea, and and the reason I think this is a bad idea is just. What happened to Garmin, you know, the, the navigation and, you know, wearables company that would have gone under if they weren't able to pay this ransom? Like the companies that are paying these ransoms, they, they don't want to, you know, like it's not like everyone's <laughs> like, oh, let's go give millions of dollars to Russian criminals. They don't want to. They're paying because they have to. And if you start putting these rules, you know, on companies, you're going to wind up with directors who are caught between sinking their own companies and obeying the law. And that's not a position I think the US government should be putting people in, to be honest, like just at all. Yeah, like I think the unintended consequences, and it, it sounds great, like it sounds like a great idea, let's just not pay them, cut off the business model, then the problem will go away. But the bugs and the entry points don't go away and the motivations don't go away. And the willingness of people to pay, as you say, when they're in a real tight spot, that also doesn't go away. And at least... You know, we're kind of getting to a point where reporting of ransomware incidents is much better than it was. You know, the obligations to disclose to people are, are making this stuff more visible. And that does help us understand it, regulate it, work with it, uh, and ultimately fix it better than driving it underground. I think that's that's the, the argument, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the upshot in the piece that we've uh, linked to this week, which is by Matt Capco over at Cybersecurity Dive, which is, yeah, I mean, people are finally reporting this stuff. If you ban it, they'll just quietly pay and... Uh, you know, that's that. They'll, they'll pull a Trump and uh, make it look like legal <laughs> services rendered uh, or whatever. And, um, you know, that'll be that. So, but I, I, look, I just think it's a, it's a bad idea. It's, and, and as you say, it's one of those ideas, it's one of those bad ideas that sounds appealing, which is what makes it so dangerous. Yeah, it's one of those things that just, it looks simple on the surface, but it really doesn't take into account the actual complexity of the problems that we have to solve and the unintended consequences. Can you imagine having to apply to the government for a waiver to pay a ransom to get your network back up and running? Like, just no. <laughs> like, you know, don't make it worse, please. Um, some good news here. The armed wing of Hamas... Uh, which is apparently called the Izeldin Al-Qassam Brigades. Uh, so they're an armed faction in Gaza. They've been soliciting donations of cryptocurrency for many, many years, and they've, they've shut that down now, according to this report from uh, Reuters. They've said, look, people who've been giving us crypto are like getting hassled and prosecuted, so we're not taking uh, cryptocurrency donations anymore. I think this is an interesting sign of the times, right? Because 
the crypto ecosystem, like particularly around stuff like Bitcoin, between KYC, you know, know your customer and anti-money laundering uh, regulations that are kicking in in all sorts of places between prosecutions, you know, coin mixes disappearing, exchanges being shut down and prosecuted. It's just a different world to the one it was even a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, when you look at the, some of the research that comes out of you know, organizations like Chainalysis, you know, it's hard to pay anonymously, which is kind of, as you said, the point of, of Know Your Customer and the point of, of anti-money laundering uh, is to be able to follow the money. And, you know, we're pretty good at following Bitcoin now. And I think, you know, the fact that that has come home to the point where, like, it's better to just turn off the ability to take those donations uh, than it is to try and find some way around it. That's a good point. Oh, they, they might have found a way around it, right? I mean, I'm sure they're still doing cash collections and whatever. So they would still have good fundraising. Um, but, you know, it, it is interesting that they've deemed that that uh, crypto is is unsafe. Uh, let's put it that way. Um and look, speaking, staying with crypto, uh, the FBI and Ukrainian authorities have actually uh, seized uh, a couple of uh, cryptocurrency exchanges for aiding and abetting cyber criminals. This is a James Reddick piece from The Record. Yes, this talks about uh, a number of crypto exchanges, UXBTC, TrustExchange.org, Bitcoin24.exchange, and a bunch of others um, that have been shut down through coordinated work uh, between the FBI and the Ukrainians. Uh, and it kind of makes sense, I guess, that, you know, the... Uh, you know, the falling apart of the wider kind of, you know, Russian-speaking crime ecosystem into a Russian faction and a Ukrainian faction, you know, has made a bunch of these operations not viable in a way that, you know, would have been unthinkable, if, you know, prior to the to the conflict in Ukraine. So, yeah, good to see um, law enforcement uh, doing their job there. And, you know, that's kind of what it takes to shut down uh, yeah. <laughs> some of this Russian-operated Russian infrastructure. I think this stuff, and, it, you know, it's something we've said before on the show, but this stuff is starting to add up to something meaningful, right? Like if you and I, five years ago, you and I decided to be ransomware criminals, we could have done it, right? We could have knocked yeah. up a, a strain, you know, spammed it out there, got a few targets or, you know, done a targeted intrusion on some big organization, deployed some ransomware, you know, accepted payment in Bitcoin, run it through a few tumblers and we'd be off living in wherever, right? Like, you know, in our nice fancy houses. I don't think you and I could do that anymore, Adam, because you need such a detailed knowledge of how to handle the money side. And when we yes. think about how much cryptocurrency has enabled the rise of ransomware, you know, it's becoming a limiting factor now. Like it is not what it used to be at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, agreed completely. Like, I mean, doing cybercrime, you know, the, the cyber part of it seems pretty straightforward still, right? There's still enough bugs. There's still, I yeah. mean, sure, some organizations are much harder targets than they once were. But and you're like still going to find, you're still going to find ransomware targets, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's always going to be, well, there's going to be targets. They will get a little bit harder, but yeah, like we could have done it. But now, like my confidence in our ability to do the money part of that. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I, I don't know whether that's worse risking, you know, risking my kneecaps or life in jail over. Yeah, well, they claimed uh, Is El Din Al Qassam. The, uh, the is El Din Al Qassam brigades uh, as a as a victim of their regulation, and let's see if they can uh, eventually catch up with the ransomware crews. But <laughs> you know, we don't often talk about uh, specific ransomware attacks. There's constantly stuff going on, uh, but we only talk about some of the very very big ones. And the city of Dallas in the United States has uh, got whacked real hard uh, recently. I mean, this even impacted emergency dispatch and and whatnot. So they're still struggling to get back online. 
Yes, and they've got uh, an election coming up very soon as well that they're going to have to struggle through uh, without the aid of a bunch of their technology. But yeah, when a city you know the size of Dallas uh, is you know struggling to pay people, struggling to handle you know even kind of basic inquiries about uh, you know municipal operated infrastructure, like it's a real tough place uh, for them to be. And as you say, like getting to the point where you know you could dispatch police and ambulance. You know, that's that's it's pretty important. That stuff keeps running, even if they are doing it at uh, you know without the aid of their technology. Now, uh, earlier, Adam, you were talking about how a lot of people haven't uh, um, patched the paper cut bug, right? Which is a really bad one. And you know, this next story, this is a John Grieg one from the record, uh, does not fill me. I'm not brimming with hope that we're going to see these paper cut bugs, uh, you know, disappearing from online instances because. People are still have still not patched their go anywhere in MFT bugs, and um, yeah, you know, th- th- there's plenty of it still out there, just waiting. Well, probably already shelled, and just waiting for the next round of shells. Yeah, it has been hard watching this one unfurl, especially when you know there's been such a lot of file transfer service compromised over the last couple of years. You'd hope it would be taken uh, a bit more seriously, but yeah, I guess plenty of people don't have great asset management. Plenty of people have systems they don't understand or, or realize what's there or how or you know that it's on the internet. But yeah, the um, uh, some research from Census was saying that you know there is just still a bunch um, of go MFT exposed on the internet, and yeah, it's all going to get owned. So. It is. I mean, I think it's time that vendors, like if you look at some of the stuff we've spoken about, like Fortinet, Go Anywhere, MFT, I think it's time that vendors are expected to be able to manage the patching of these devices Yeah, on behalf of their customers. They should auto-update. And I know that that might result in a two-minute outage every now and then that someone's not expecting. I mean, maybe you let the admin when you're first doing the installation, please take, you know, select the time window when this thing's going to update. Um, and of course, you know, sometimes a patch is going to go wrong. The device is going to stop working. But when you contrast that against the harms of not patching, um, you know, I think this is a change that vendors need to make. I think it also puts the onus on vendors to make better software that is more resilient when it gets patched and things like that. And I just, I just think that's an idea that some of these, some of these vendors of enterprise software really need to think about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. I mean, it's the world has, you know, it's just not how it used to be. You can't just deploy trash software and and let the fallout happen, right? You have some responsibility to help your customers, you know, even if they don't have a support contract, et cetera, et cetera, like to try and, you know, for the benefit of everybody, stop this stuff from having such a long tail. Now, Risky Business is in its 17th year now, and uh, which is, you know, uh, incredible, actually. <laughs> but for 18 years, uh, there's a Russian bloke named Denis Kulkov, who, you know, while we've been real building Risky Business, he's been operating Try to Check. And this is a service where you can take a stolen credit card number and make sure that it's still working, right? And he's been operating this service for a long, long time. It looks like he would have made at least $18 million out of it. And he's been charged in absentia uh, with uh, operating this service. And the US government has put out a $10 million award. So if you can trick this guy into, you know, going to Euro Disneyland or something, uh, you're going to get you're <laughs> going to get 10 million bucks. Brian Krebs has done a write up about all of this. And it's actually just, you know, it's a terrific read. You know, Brian's the only guy who can write this story because it's just got so much detail in it. And it's just, it's a great backgrounder on this service. It also mentions that thing that you were talking about. Uh, earlier about how the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine has just made a whole bunch of stuff go sideways for the criminal ecosystem, including, you know, a bunch of them from both countries, just they had to leave. They did not want to fight in the war. So they went to other countries like Switzerland and, and got arrested there because they wanted. So 
just a terrific story, a terrific read, and uh, I'm sure you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I do enjoy a good, a good quality Krebsing, you know, with all of the, you know, tying together old accounts and password reuse. Uh, in this case, I think his wife's name is his password, Anna. Um, so that that's always good. And old ICQ numbers. Yeah, it's just, it's it's such classic Krebs work. And, uh, you know, it does I do, I do wonder whether if you started doing internet crime in the mid-2000s, whether it's possible to survive being Krebsed. Like, could, is there any OPSEC that would have lasted 15 years you know 20 well, years well I, I actually was thinking that in the back of my head when i'm sa- when i was saying to you just a minute ago that if we had done a ransomware campaign five years ago it would have been great because all of that chain analysis stuff and uh there's a couple other companies who do it as well all of that blockchain analysis stuff it's catching up with people who did crimes five years ago yes right, it is, right? so the idea that like what you could have got away with five years ago like there is evidence lying around and it can catch up with you yeah, exactly. And things, you know, like, you know, forums being doxxed years, years, you know, years and years later, or, you know, data sources that once upon a time, you know, you could kind of trust becoming, you know, open and, and rummaged through by Bellingcat. And then who would have predicted, right, Ukraine versus Russia as a war? You know, it, it's such a, the world changed around all of that crime and all of your OPSEC choices, you know, don't happen in a vacuum. Well, that's right. And, and a lot of these people rely on the fact that, oh, well, I'm safe in Russia. It's like, yeah. well, you're 43 years old, man. You're kind of eligible for military service. Are you sure you're safe in Russia? You know, I mean, someone like that would love to take their 18 million bucks and go to another country, you know, but travel at the moment for these guys, I wouldn't really recommend it. Yeah. And I mean, the question is what happens in Russia five years from now? Yeah. Know, and all these people who've been relying on that state, uh, you know, state protection, I don't know what it looks like. Is it state protection or is it state ambivalence? I think is probably a better way to say it, you know. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the world can change and I do wonder how these people are going to look in five years' time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently a bunch of the large language models are headed off to DEF CON, Adam, and uh, they're going to get the, the full treatment. Uh, yes, uh, there's going to be a group uh, that's doing, you know, kind of AI hacking and research at DEF CON, um, supported by, you know, a number of the vendors uh, and with various tools in place to kind of help them, you know, attack and, you know, hopefully find some, you know, kind of novel ideas, new ways of thinking. I mean, AI has become such a big thing lately. Uh, and we've seen, you know, similar sorts of work at other DEF CONs for like, you know, like satellite hacking or uh, IoT hacking. So getting a bunch of real smart people in a room, give them a bunch of gear to play with and a mechanism to report, report stuff responsibly. It's going to be good to see what uh, comes out of it. Uh, if you have a Google account, Adam, uh, a personal Google account, you can now use pass keys with it, which is, you know, it's like FIDO2 for the masses. You should tell all of your family members who are using a Gmail account to go and roll this out. I actually tried to set it up on my Workspace account and, you know, clicked on all of the things and then it said your administrator does not allow this. And I'm like, God damn that administrator, me, <laughs> curse him, myself, <laughs> curse me. But yeah, certainly if, you, if you've got a, uh, and I already use a YubiKey anyway, I just wanted to play around with it. But, you know, this is great. We need this, you know, we need to stop relying on bad MFA and uh, pass keys are just terrific. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in the same same boat as you, unfortunately. My uh, Googles are also Google Workspace, so we don't get it quite yet. Um, but yeah, for personal Google accounts, like this is just a no-brainer. Um, mm. And not having to rely on passwords that are going to be stolen and reused and et cetera, et cetera. It's just the right, it's the way forward. Uh, and, you know, the usability is so good now mm. um, that I, I don't know why you wouldn't 
I don't know what the enterprise options for pass keys actually are. Because, you know, I I think I mentioned like last week or the week before that I had a friend who was a CISO and uh, we were talking about the spear phishing problem and wondering if pass keys could be a solution. But, you know, it always comes back to that thing of like, eh, we don't manage our employee devices. So we don't really want to get into that whole thing of having to support something on an employee managed device, which I think is totally fair enough. And it's also why, you know, because YubiKey, Yubico, they're a sponsor of this show, right? And I'll, I'll have one of their executives on who'll say, yeah, we don't think pass keys are going to eat all of this because, you know, for those sort of reasons. And it's quite funny that people will angrily reply to me online and say, no, pass keys are everything. But then you go talk to a CISO and they're just like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, these problems are complicated. Like if there was yeah. a super easy way to solve this problem, we would already be doing it. And it is just more complicated than it looks, especially, you know, in enterprise environments or where, as you said, there's like mixed ownership of devices or systems or, or whatever else. Like it is complicated, but mm. this is just a, it's a great step, you know, it really is. It is, it is. Corellium has had another win against Apple. Apple was appealing one of the rulings in its ongoing uh, uh, copyright battle against Corellium. It's ongoing stupid uh, uh, copyright <laughs> battle against Corellium, Adam, but it uh, looks like Corellium have come out on top. I think there's one remaining claim that accuses them of like enabling infringement. Or something. It's just dumb. The whole thing's dumb. Apple keep fighting it. I have no idea why they even bother when they're clearly on the wrong side of this thing and are losing. I guess they just want to burn through some of the minimum spend they have with their lawyers or something yeah yeah i don't know it's a good it's a good question of what they're hoping to achieve with this because i mean the uh, main claim which went back to like copyright infringement of the operating system has been thrown out and now they're back to like arguing about whether they own copyright on the icons and like default wallpapers and stuff which you it's know, the if whole ba- thing is so dumb like the court in this case just said it's fair use f- off yeah <laughs> you know, basically, and it is, yeah, right? Like I mean, trying to argue that this sort of testing rig harms iPhone sales and that you're like, that you're copying their product. Like it's just insane. Yeah, like what are you going to do? Like make calls with your Corellium iOS emulator? Like no, you're not, right? I mean, and then what? You don't open Corellium to look at the wallpaper and admire it, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, as best it I can tell, like the primary use case for Corellium is exploit dev but it's not the only use either right like uh, there are people like bigger companies that have to offer apps that are supported on a whole bunch of different you know bits of hardware like if you're a major bank or something like Corellium's really useful for compatibility testing and stuff yeah i mean we certainly uh, looked at using it for where it made sense in in app testing for customers building out mobile apps and services um, rather than having to maintain a fleet of devices that are you know constantly not charged or not patched or yeah. too patched or and take up know, physical space and take up physical space and are often in the wrong physical place yeah. you know you want to allocate the work to someone in a different city and now you got to try and get the device it's just a pain yeah no, especially I, during covid when we were all at home well well yeah when you can't get to the office um yeah, no, anyway, so another victory for Corellium. Long may that continue. Um, now, we've got a story here from Wired. I mean, this isn't technically a cybersecurity yarn. But, you know, some time ago, there was a story published on, on Vice about how some data broker was selling information on people who'd visited abortion clinics. And the story kind of made it sound like they had an advertisement on their front page saying, click here to buy data on people who visited abortion clinics. I think the real issue there uh, with that company was they were not appropriately redacting information around sensitive locations like, um, you know, family planning clinics and whatnot. This company now is doing a deal with the Air Force. And this is according to a story by Bennett Cyphers over at, great name by the way, Bennett, uh, over at Wired. 
and uh, apparently now the 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 company is called SafeGraph, and and now apparently the U.S. Air Force is buying access to a lot of this location data. But I found the use case here is awesome, Adam, because what the Air Force is planning to do with it is to figure out areas where they shouldn't drop bombs because there are like schools in those areas and things like that. And I think this is a use case we can all support. Yeah, anything that results in people not being killed is probably a good a good use of technology. Uh, although, you know, Wired does rather write it up like it's somehow still, you know, creepy and weird. And, you know, maybe location tracking is just inherently creepy and weird and there's no way around that. But, yeah, selling a system to the US mill to build, quote, <clears throat> a no-strike list at machine speed, unquote, uh, <laughs> I mean... I mean, kudos to whoever sat through all the meetings to make this happen, right? And of course, Wyatt has written it up like, oh, but they were creepy and sold access to, you know, information around abortion clinics and whatnot. And it's like, well, sort of, you know, like they should be doing a better job to redact sensitive stuff. Like hand, no question they should have. But as I say, I think some of the, the original reporting made it seem like that was their business, <laughs> <laughs> which it's yeah uh, i mean everyone's everyone's looking for the you know the perfect gotcha story yeah um, and like in the end we are talking about a relatively small amount of money coming from the air force here like seventy thousand dollars or whatever else yeah but the, the, uh, they, the, the headline sort of seems to suggest that they shouldn't be giving the money because of the you know previous privacy stuff which just seems insane to me yeah yeah and they've done work with a bunch of other places like the centers for disease control for example yeah. um which you know perhaps might have been useful during a pandemic i'm not sure um but yeah, it's uh, I don't know. We, we do do a lot of hand wringing reporting sometimes, uh, especially around this kind of data sharing. Yeah. Um, and you know, there are cases where it's bad and the, it does get abused, and you know, it's not uh, not ideal or what we want. But not blowing people up also sounds like a good plan to me. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't think this should sort of data should be for sale. Uh, I, I I just don't. But I think if it's going to be for sale, using it to try to work out places, uh, you know, a no-strike list, I think, is, a, is an excellent use of this data. And whoever thought of that, if you're listening, well done. Um, that's a great use of technology. <laughs> a good angle, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I you know, my, my history at, at university or college, as the Americans call it, was in engineering. And the, you know, the largest recruiters from my degree were, and I, my specialty was in sensing. And you can imagine the types of companies that tend to recruit <laughs> that pool of graduates, right? It's military yes, contractors. Yeah. And, you know, I had to go through that whole thing of like, would I ever work for one uh, doing this sort of stuff? And, you know, it is, a, it is a complicated question because yes, you would be working on devices that would kill people. But if the purpose of your work is to improve the way that those things can accurately hit their targets, are you saving lives at that point or are you taking them? And this is a, you know, this is a big discussion. It's a complicated thing. Yes. Yeah, uh, it really it, it's not black and white, right? And I just think in this case, though, this is a, this is a good use case. Anyway, Adam, I'm rambling uh, as I am want to do sometimes, but that is it for <laughs> this week's news segment. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I'm, I'm about to pack up and head to Ossert for a couple of days. Uh, so any listeners who are heading up, I'll see you there. Uh, but we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, we certainly will. Thanks very much, Pat. I'll see you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Gigamon's CSO, Chaim Mazal. And you would know uh, if you're a regular listener that Gigamon acquired Iceberg a while back, which was a way ahead of its time NDR platform. Uh, Gigamon has since on-sold that product uh, to Fortinet for the simple reason that Gigamon 
wound up competing against other network security players that really they were better off collaborating with. So they've divested from that product and they've decided to focus on playing nicely with others. Gigamon networking equipment can do some pretty tasty metadata collection. And now they've got uh, virtual network collectors as well that you can roll out into your cloud environments. And, uh, you know, this is handy if you want a uniform view of things. And if you want the, you know, network metadata from your uh, Gigamon on-prem gear to look like the metadata collected in your cloud environment, you know, uh, that's a useful thing. Anyway, here is Gigamon's chief security officer, Chaim Mazal, talking about how Gigamon is working with others these days. So whatever your stack is, uh, whatever your ecosystem looks like, whatever tools you're leveraging uh, in for your cloud provider or your on-premise deployments, uh, you know, we have active partnerships where we're looking to go ahead and build, uh, you know, unified strategies where we focus on integrations, uh, we focus on data sharing uh, and really being able to enhance and level up our customers across the board. So, you know, whether you use a product like New Relic or you use Dynatrace or, you know, um, whatever your ecosystem may look like, um, we have heavily, heavily invested into these ongoing relationships and partnerships. So we're able to go ahead and level up uh, your implementation utilizations of your tools in real time. So, so you know, you, you talk about how you're leveling, leveling it up, right? Making it better. How? Like in, in, in a concrete sense, like what is it that you're doing that, you know, uh, is actually, um, uh, you know, better for your, for your customers? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the cool things is, right, being able to take Gigamon, being able to take that network level intelligence, being able to go ahead and reduce it down uh, to metadata, being able to rehydrate it and be able to ingest it uh, into the multitude of tools and having native integrations or being able to work it collaborative, collaboratively and having native dashboards that you can go ahead and invest in and things that you're able to pull down from uh, your provider's platforms of choice. All of these things we think are uh, very, very beneficial things and will continue to materialize for our customers. So a lot of so, this- so essentially, essentially, you know, you've turned your networking equipment, I'm guessing, you know, you've got the ability to turn your networking equipment into sensors that can provide data to other solutions. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll just give you an example. So let's say that you're going ahead and you're deploying, you're deploying Gigamon in AWS, right? And you have this AWS, you know, Kubernetes cluster that you are effectively deploying. Uh, and you have uh, actionable network level intelligence data that you have within that, you know, we're making it easy uh, for your third party provider, like a data dog, right, to be able to ingest that data uh, and help, uh, you know, across a, a myriad of different teams, whether that's uh, application performance information, whether that's security tooling information or, or network level intelligence, like whatever that use case may be. Uh, we'll be able to help that organization. And hopefully there'll be, you know, uh, built-in dashboards within New Relic, within Datadog, within Dynatrace, with that, whatever your observability provider is, uh, to be able to have that direct connection and integration, to be able to have that uh, those real-time insights where you're taking all of the data, all of this immutable data across your organization, right? Uh, you're, you're basically reducing it down and then making it uh, easier to ingest and easier to utilize by your individual uh, teams, whether that's network operations, security operations, and or... Uh, Dev, DevSecOps or um, Cloud Engineering Gel. Yeah, now you did mention AWS there and you've got uh, essentially a container now, which is a network sensor, right, that you can deploy into your cloud infrastructure, which is going to give you the same view of network data that gets, uh, you know, that comes out of your of your actual hardware equipment, right? Like, so it's yeah, the idea absolutely. is you've got some uniformity there. Absolutely. So it'd be a uniform view across the board, whether in your data center, you know, you have Gigamon deployed or whether you have it in your public cloud or private cloud, right? Whether that's, you know, uh, AWS, um, you know, GCP or Azure, or whether you're using, you know, whatever, whatever home rule solution for your um, private cloud, uh, you can have a uniformity of view across all of your unique data sets. 
So basically, if you need to send data from your private and or public cloud back to whatever location you have for your centralized repository for your network operations center, your security operations center, so now you have a single stream of uh, intelligence data that you can go ahead and feed to your observability and security tooling. So basically, we wanted to go ahead and take a uniform approach to how you can ingest uh, our deep observability, uh, deep observability pipeline uh, into uh, whatever tools that you need, regardless of of where they might be in your disparate uh, hybrid uh, deployment. I got a question for you. It just occurred to me, right, that when you're talking about a hybrid sort of on-prem cloud environment, is traffic between on-prem and cloud is that east-west at that point, or is it north-south? Yeah, so we're going to say that that is uh, that's north north-south. So east-west would be uh, within a singular uh, environment. So that yeah, would but be- isn't it a singular environment when it's hybrid like that? I mean, I mean, when when we look at some of these attacks recently, where yeah. um, I think it was the Iranians who were going up through Azure, Azure AD, Azure Active Directory Connect, and they were moving laterally into the cloud environment. I mean, is that north south at that point? I mean, it depends on the deployment configuration. I get where you're going with that. Uh, yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> there's definitely some d- direct connect scenarios or uh, issues where you have um, you know peering. Uh, which it could be considered as a, a lateral movement, right? Of uh, of of east west. Because uh, that's the I, thing: you can move north south into the into the cloud environment, but you can also move east west kind of thing. I'm just wondering if that model needs a bit of an update. Anyway, this is a philosophical <laughs> distraction that you did oh, not sign up for, home. No, 100. percent No, I, I I I totally get it. But I want you to know that those a lot of those conversations uh, go into security architecture reviews uh, for a lot of compliance reasons when you're thinking about expanding. Uh, you know, your infrastructure uh, through peering, through di- in, um, different cloud deployments within the same cloud provider or multiple cloud providers, right? You expand uh, your PCI scope or you think about like how you're going to create a, you know, prod only environment. Well, what does prod only mean if it's connected to the rest of the world in 85 different places, right? So that is uh, it is, it is real and valid concern. So I think for our use case here, we'll say that um, north-south is going to be from cloud providers and east-west and east west is going to be uh, internally within a, a singular a singular cloud provider with um, you know, lateral pivoting and things of that nature. Yeah, solely on-prem. I mean, I guess it makes sense to still think about it that way when you're worried about like, for example, compromise of either and you're yeah. thinking about them as separate things. But I guess, yeah, I guess it is interesting when you start seeing attackers moving laterally through AAD Connect and that's like, <laughs> ooh, you know? <laughs> That's lateral movement, but it's north-south, and I'm confused. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, I mean, you guys are calling all of this deep observability, right? Yeah. Like, what's deep about it? Because ultimately, right, like network data is network data. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a bunch of ways to to grab it off the wire. You know, what what makes it deep in the case of, of Gigamon? And I, I get that it's good marketing, but I'm, I'm guessing there's at least something behind that, right? Yeah, no, so I, I def- there, there definitely is, right? So if we think about what, you know, observability is in general... Um, you know, that's existed for a long time. Like we think about all of these different, you know, um, portions of information uh, that are mutable, right? That these are things that can be uh, changed. These are things that can be altered. These are things that attackers can uh, effectively cover uh, up as they go ahead and go through uh, whatever their their modes of operation is uh, through an, an, act, an active breach, right? So when we think about what deep observability is, we're saying we want to take immutable data, which we believe uh, is the network level intelligence that Gigamon's able to provide. And we want to go ahead and make that easily consumed. And we want to go ahead and be able to reduce the amount of capacity of those PCAPs, essentially, which is the entirety of your network uh, data, into a way that's easily transferred, which can effectively save you um, tons of money um, based on your uh, transactions and egress ingress 
into whatever security tools or observability tools that you may have. So what we're saying is that we are the definitive line of truth. We have information that can't be altered, that we have a secret sauce around for flow mapping, where we can go ahead and reduce the amount of data that needs to be ingested into your observability tools and into your security tools that still gives you a comprehensive, complete, 100% view of everything that's transpiring across your environments. And that's a now unique- you mentioned PCAPs there. I'm guessing you're not doing full full take, right? Yes. But you're doing some. You are actually storing some PCAPs in some circumstances. Is that kind of no? How no. You so it? we we are we are deriving metadata uh, from the full PCAPs from the PCAPs, right? That's okay. right. So that yeah. that's that that's that's part of the secret sauce. So we have the full view. We take everything that's relevant. We take everything that's uh, uh, unique and through flow mapping to whatever applications may be, uh, whatever the servers, whatever those transactions may be. And we go ahead and we we derive essentially what's valuable, where it came from, and where it needs to go for you to be successful. And um, this is the thing about being able to reconstitute that data into a full view across whatever your scenario might be is where that uh, is where that deep observability comes from. To have the amount of success where you're, hey, we're not just looking at events, we're not just looking at logs, we're looking at the entirety of everything, and you can go ahead and reduce that down through metadata into a fraction of that amount of data and still have the few the full value of it. I'd imagine too that when you start rolling out little capabilities like this, right? Like some of the NDR platforms say, oh, cool, okay, well now we might think about doing this and add some new detection or new feature or whatever. Is that kind of how it's been working out? Yeah. So what we're thinking is, is um, yeah, that this is this is equally valuable for our, our vendors and our partners as well, right? Because the amount of data that we have and the amount of insight that we have across the board will lead to new detections, will lead to new value streams with how they're thinking about solving reoccurring solutions or problems across the board as far as um, you know, security and or network efficiency uh, and or even application level data. So the more data we can provide across the board, right, and the more actionable it is, uh, again, it, it affects and has reverberations uh, in our partner ecosystem and the way that they're thinking about creating these things. All right, Chaim Mazal, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show for that discussion. Uh, very interesting stuff. It's it's great to hear, uh, you know, what, what vendors like yourself, you know, the way that they're thinking about these problems. So uh, uh, very good stuff. Cheers. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. That was Haim Mazal there from Gigamon. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Gigamon for sponsoring this week's show. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast in our Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.